Welcome to the Enrich Your Soul Podcast, episode 160 with Lisa Walden and Hannah Ubel of Good Company Consulting. told them before, this is a long time coming. I am so excited to have these two phenomenal women on my show today that I have been a major fanboy of for years. Um, I've been able to follow them, get to know them. And here we are talking with Hannah and Lisa of Good Company Consulting. I'm thrilled to have them on the show as they are fellow keynote speakers. They are very invested in corporate culture and how companies can behave better and engage their employees at a higher level. But also, they have a phenomenal new book that we're going to talk about as well and talk about some of the keynotes that they're doing. So my gratitude for your time here today. Thank you both so much for being here today. How are you both doing? So good. So good. And the gratitude right back at you, Rich. Thank you for having us. Like, we're so excited to talk to you. And you're right. It has been a long time coming. It has. And I'm glad the check finally made it to you all and that it's cleared. So that's that's why we're here today. (laughs) I was here. It's bribery. Anybody who associates their brand with me, there's there's money under the table going on here. So whatever we need to do to figure that out. But uh, Lisa, do you want to introduce? Yeah, exactly. And there it is. There it is. So Lisa, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, and then Hannah will will turn it over to you. Yes, I would love to. So I am currently a keynote speaker in this world that we move in and uh, a researcher as well. And this latest book is based on the research initiative that we kind of, I, I would say, you know, we started before the pandemic, but we really defined during the pandemic years as we realized that we were living through this watershed moment. So my my background is actually in generational research. That's where, that's what I was doing before for starting the company that Hannah and I, and I now co-own, Good Company Consulting. So a lot of time spent learning about people, digging into sociology, understanding broad patterns, and really trying to understand what are the dynamics at work? How do we interact with one another? And how can we make those dynamics even better? So now we're doing it from not just strictly a generational lens, but more under the broad question and umbrella of how do we create workplaces that don't suck? I love that. And Hannah, please introduce yourself and and whatever last name you want to roll with, because I know that there are some recent nuptials. So congratulations, first of all, but let's let's hear about you. Yes, thank you. And last name is Ubel. Um, I said at the age of six that I would never give up my last name because I thought it was the coolest last name in the entire world. Um, So it's still Ubel, Hannah Ubel. And yes, Lisa and I have a very similar background. So a lot of what Lisa said is extremely similar for myself. And I will say too, I mean, there's a huge passion that motivates myself and Lisa in our business. And it's just that everyone deserves a great place to work. We have spent so many years studying and understanding people at work and they share so much with us about how they think that work is terrible. (laughs) And it's like one of the hardest parts of their days. And the first page of our book says 90,000 hours, because that's like the average amount of time that we spend working. And if you think about your connections and relationships in life, like most of the time you're spending during your days are with people at work. And so our whole goal is to make all of those 90,000 hours 
as great as they can be because they're not going to be perfect work is work. Uh, but I know that that's, that's something that's super motivating for me just because I've had terrible jobs. Like many people, I've also had really great dream jobs and that's not just the one I currently have. So I feel very fortunate and I feel like more people should have those jobs. And so that's a mission of our company is to create places that foster that. And the book is also an attempt at getting us there as well. And I love that. And I do, I remember when, and, and I thank you both for sending me the, the advanced copy. So I'm going to go ahead and just brag on the fact that I got to see the book before the book. Uh, but that number jumps out at you. And I would probably, the only person I think would push back on that is anybody with the, the word attorney in their job description, because I'm sure they say they work 90,000 hours a week. Um, but with that, you know, I think the other statistic that jumped out at me too, and, and keep me honest here is that only 15% of people actually like what they do or enjoy their job. Is that around that, that number? It's pretty low, which is sad. It's depressing. It's honestly depressing. And it's a number because we always try to dig beyond the statistics. Statistics can be manipulated. They only tell part of a story, you know, so we always like to dig into the story behind the statistics that we we're we're finding and we're pulling from, you know, other people's research and our own. And it, honestly, it unfortunately very much bears out in the work that we're doing. A lot of people are very deeply unhappy in some way with the their experience at work. And I, I think that, I mean, obviously it depends on sometimes the organization, sometimes the, the mindset of the individual, but by and large, yeah, it seems like people are deeply, deeply unsatisfied with the work that they're doing, which is, which is sad. Really sad. It, it is sad. Yeah. Hannah, did, did you want to add something to that? Mostly just that it's sad. Um, it's, definitely, it's, it's just, it's really disappointing. And I think too, I mean, I even think about my, um, my now husband still weird uh, getting used to saying that, but he, he, I mean, just being like a partner of someone too has been in different jobs and tried different things. Like you can see in any person around you, like any loved one, any friend, just how much their lives change when they like their work. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the statistic of how many people actually enjoy work or how many people are engaged at work. I mean, the ebbs and flows of that, I think it just permeates out to every other person in their lives. And I think it's why it's such a familiar challenge for so many people. Absolutely. And I, and I I think anybody and everybody, especially based on statistics and look past the statistic to the story too, I think anybody that's listening would resonate with that because I, you know, like you said, and, and I will say the same thing, I've been in some great jobs, but I've also been in some that were just painful to deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis. And so going to the concept of a job that you like, I'd like to hear a little bit about how the two of you connected because you have different backgrounds, you know, you look at things in a different way, but it's this, it's this great. And I've been able to watch it for years now, watching it grow and and become what it is now, but tell everybody a little bit about how the two of you connected and how this idea of forming good company came about. Yeah. Hannah, I'll let you take the reins on this one. Since, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, just, yeah. I thought you were just so, going to say, no, Hannah. <laughs> no, there are. No, Oh man, Rich. So like our whole story, I think I find very entertaining. So Lisa and I actually, we met back in college in Shakespeare society. So let that give you um, just kind of a peek into who we are as human beings. And when I got, I got my first job as a speaker talking about generational differences. And I, it was really fortunate and really lucky because I was currently in chiropractic school and thinking I needed to change my entire life when I got this job. Uh, and I, I immediately was like, this is so cool. People at work are so interesting. And I was talking to Lisa 
who was in Boston at that time. And uh, she was like, I'm going to go to graduate school and I'm going to get an MBA. And I was like, and on your way, stop by for an internship. And then she did. And we ended up working together for a long time. And so it, all of this is an important part of our story because it's like, we're friends first and then we work together. And so many people say that friends can't work together. And for us, it's actually a dream. It works so, so well because we, I mean, and in Shakespeare society, we co-directed together. Like we, we just have been collaborating with each other for a very long time. And then when we both left the previous consulting company we were with, we got together and we're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And we really united around this idea of like, well, what if we, we've been researching and talking about people at work for so long through a generational lens, but through that you hear about people at work. And so we thought there's definitely something there. Let's talk about how to help people create better work environments. And Lisa at that point was doing so much marketing, so much consulting. I was doing more of the research and speaking. And so then we were like, well, let's join forces together and do everything together. I love that. Right, Captain, when your powers unite, you know, <laughs> yes. those awesome work. I, like I, I did not have Shakespeare chiropractic and superpowers on my, on my bingo for this podcast, but here we are. So and Captain Janet. So yeah, that's, I, that's a deep cut. That's like I, a very millennial deep cut. Yes, it is. I mean, we, we may need to shut down now. Cause I don't know that it gets, I mean, that's, that's the trifecta <laughs> of fantastic right there. <laughs> yeah. And if, and I remember hearing in a, in a different show that you two were on that Lisa, you weren't a fan of public speaking when this all got started, were you? I was a fan of it. I just wanted to have no part of the stage portion of it. Ah. So for me, I was a lot of the behind the scenes. I did a lot of the research, the consulting in rooms. You know, I'm an introvert. I like one-on-one -on -one conversations. I do not like to be, you know, in rooms of people where I have to try and, you know, interact and mingle with everyone. Or maybe I didn't like to in the past. Uh, so yeah, I, I, one of our colleagues, Phil Gouke, he, he is, he's such an incredible human and he's a speaker as well. And he was so funny. He would always just sort of like sidle up to me and, and sort of cross his arms and say, Lisa, I think you should speak. And I would always say, Phil Gouke, absolutely not. Never in a million years would I do that. That sounds terrible and terrifying. And it's the number one fear, you know, above death and shark attacks for a reason. No, I'm not interested in doing that ever. And he'd just be like, but I think you really should. And I think you'd be really good at it. And I, I think that you're gonna. And I was like, I, I will not, Phil. I don't know what to tell you. Like, I'm, I am the master of my own destiny and I'm not going to do that. And he just sort of gave me this, you know, knowing look. Now, years later, we actually caught up uh, in January of this year. And he was like, I told you, you're going to be a speaker. And I was like, you know what? You're right. You're right, Phil. I, I, you saw something I didn't. But I think I realized that, first of all, the pat I, I can't fake the passion for a topic. This is, I mean, I can't fake being like good or liking a job. This is one of the things that you know, I feel it makes me either a terrible or an amazing employee. I just really struggle with um, doing work that is not really motivating and engaging. I, I don't know if I'm like borderline ADHD or what, but it's extremely hard for me to give my focus to something I don't believe in and think is wonderful. And so this topic, obviously extremely passionate about, and I came to the realization also that speaking is kind of like having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with an audience of people. I don't know how, it's a, such a strange thing. I'm not sure exactly how to explain it, but I think it's just the undivided 
attention and sort of conversation that you can have with the audience and the deep dive into a specific topic. Mm. And it is so, so much different than I thought it would be and so much better than I thought it would be. And I really enjoy uh, understanding, you know, from the audience reactions, from the conversations afterwards, from the people who come up and say, wow, like I've, I've been trying to communicate that message for so long. It's so good to have somebody else come in and say that, or you spoke to something that I have been thinking for, for a long time, but I didn't put words to, or, you know, you changed my mind around that. I used to be one of those, you know, cause we still speak on generations. So things like I used to be one of those leaders who thought, you know, these kids are just entitled and uh, have no work, work ethic. And now I understand where that comes from. And I, I understand my kids better. And I understand the people I lead better. And I'm going to change my approach because of that. All of those things are so extremely validating. And the introvert in me loves the job. I never thought I would. Now, caveat, I do need to, after speeches, you know, have conversations, enjoy that, enjoy that. And then I need to go into a, a room, turn off the lights and like, you know, wrap myself in a blanket and recharge because I'm an introvert, but right. it is, it's an amazing job. It's kind of a dream, kind of a dream situation as I, I think you probably would agree, Rich. Yeah. And I think it sounds like you've maybe not fully departed the introverted mentality, more ambivertish. Cause I will say that I'm an ambivert. Like I will, I mean, obviously by my background, I'm I've got some vibrancy to me, but there are times that, you know, and the same thing, like once I'm done and leave the client site, like I'll sit in, if it's local, I'll sit in my car for five, 10 minutes, listen to Sade and come down from that. Or if I'm traveling, like, I don't want to talk to anyone. I am not trying to be the jerk in the airport, but like, just y'all stay over there. I'll be over here with whatever device I could put on my head to make you think that I don't want to talk to you at all. Cause I, I need to recharge. So I will say on, on, on both of your accounts, one, having watched your, your brand individually and as a, as a, as a duo grow and and flourish over the years, one, you know, Hannah, I know you come from a little bit more of a, a, a speaking, um, I guess a speaking passion or a speaking focus. So mm-hmm. the fact that you both have done such a phenomenal job coming from different sentiments about public speaking to do what you do. And if you all haven't seen the client testimonials that come out about these two, like go check them out because if you're extroverted and you want to be a public speaker, Hannah is a perfect example of how to do that. And if you're introverted and a public speaker, go follow Lisa because you need to figure out how to come out of that shell and then go back into it after the keynote. Um, one thing that you mentioned, I think is, is really interesting. And I think this is the sings to the, the ability that you all have to connect with your audiences is that post-speech interaction. And so when you have those conversations with companies or, or organizations and you have those individuals come up and say something along the lines of you said what I was thinking, what do you like, how does that, how does that improve their standing at the company or how does it improve their satisfaction with their job, uh, with their career path? Like, what do you tell them after that fact to say, Hey, look, this is what you need to be focusing on moving forward. Because I also, I think, um, and I just spoke with somebody about this a few minutes ago before we got on that. Sometimes keynotes are like comedy shows where you go and entertain for an hour, people enjoy themselves, and then they're off back in their own worlds. They forgot the jokes. They realized they had a good time. But then two days later, they're off back doing what they did before. So what are you telling these people to say, hey, look, here's what you need to do moving forward to continue this either emergence from the darkness of your of your uh, your apathy with your job, or here's what you need to go do to follow what you need to be doing? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's so many conversational 
touch points along the way. Like we, you know, we talk to people before we go into presentations. So we talk to people ahead of time. And like the joke is that people always say like, oh, that was a therapy session I wasn't expecting. Or they're, they're like, oh, wow, I haven't talked about this for 20 minutes to anyone just about work and my challenges. And so there's a huge piece of validation that happens with the work that we do. And I think sometimes people just need to vocalize and say, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm going through. And then to have someone say, oh, I hear that. That's a challenge that I hear about or a lot. Or to say something like, that sounds complex. That sounds really, really challenging or exhausting. And then people are like, yeah, it, you know what? It is really exhausting. And they kind of just keep going. So mm-hmm. I think there's that component that's that's really important to what we do. And when we're with people in a room, like I feel very similarly to Lisa. It's like, it's not like, here are all these faces and they're looking at me. It's like, we're talking directly to these people. Like we're looking them in the eyes. Mm -hmm. They all have these experiences. And so the goal is to share something with them that um, is not just a comedy show. And actually Rich, this is um, a little known fact about myself, but I have an extreme panic. If people are like, we just want you to come in and make them laugh. And I'm like, Okay, I'm going to backpedal a million paces because now I there's like 15 year old Hannah who was a very nerdy girl in speech in high school. And I didn't do the funny stuff. Okay, I did the serious dramatic stuff. So when people are like, make them laugh, I'm like, no, um, it's terrifying to me. But I mean, just the, the nature of our content and what we do tends to be entertaining to people. So it's fine. But there's that component where it's like, we want people to leave thinking like, oh, I feel validated. I learned something and I'm going to do something with it. And so we, and we just take so many approaches to try to hit people in the room in all the different ways we can. So it's giving them, you know, like the tactical tools, the actionable strategies, whatever you want to say, but it's, there's the big picture ones where it's like, you actually have to change your mindset. Like you have to reframe how you think about things. And that is not done with a push of a button. That's really hard, but we can leave people thinking about something. And then there's the really actionable, like to do's one, two, three, four, five. Here are some examples. Here's what other people have done. Take those carbon copy it and use it in your work environment. Mm -hmm. And then what we hear afterwards, it's so cool. Like I love when people come up to you and then they say they share a story or they talk about something but something that's even more powerful sometimes is when years later, people will reach out and they're like, I'm still talking about something that you said in a presentation. And Rich, I'm sure this happens to you all the time where it's like, oh, I had no idea that there was this person out there thinking of this one thing I said about millennials five years ago, but they are right. and they say things like that. And I see you nodding. So I'm assuming that this happens to you a lot, Rich. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's, I, I think you hit the nail on the head too. And I think it's yeah, I, and I'm I'm still kind of thinking about the comment you made about you know come in and make them laugh, and of course in the back of my mind I'm like that maybe is the person that doesn't want them hearing what's wrong with the company culture, and they maybe want to gloss some things over, assuming totally assuming. Gotcha. But I I feel like especially as much as I love listening to y'all's talks, to your content, reading the book, like there there is an engagement. There's a there's a realness. And I think there's humor within realness. And I think there's humor in assimilation as well. So it's not like a hey, I'm Hannah. Let me show you my my one woman show or if y'all are doing a presentation together. Like it's not a stand-up routine, but there is there is humor in reality. And I think that's what the best comedians tend to do as well is just bring forth and going back to the sentiment of you're saying what I'm thinking. Like mm-hmm. I all of my favorite comedians Every single one of them talk about real things, things yes. that we go through on, on a day-to-day basis. And sometimes it's funny because it's sad and true. 
So I think there's that element as well. But I think that's the the connection that y'all have with your audiences is that the reality of of the the situation or the reality of what's going on to just talk about it. Because I feel like, mm-hmm. especially, and I'm thinking back to some of my more um, less than favorable cultures that I've worked in, like you just can't talk mm-hmm. about anything. And you can't, yeah. and there's also the, I can't talk about it with anybody else for fear of retaliation or for fear of being outed that I have this displeasure. So is, are you seeing that too? And not to say that there's, there are people that are coming up like, oh my God, help me get out of here. Um, I loved your keynote, but can you help me? Here's my resume. Like they're not doing that necessarily, but are you feeling like it gives them that little bit of comfort and knowledge to know that, okay, things aren't maybe as bad as I think they are, but there's also a way out. I, I think so. I think one of the things that often happens is and it's the it's why we wrote this book the way we wrote it. I think a lot of business books are written for leadership and for people in positions who are managers. We very specifically wrote this book for everyone. So we wanted to write a book that would help everyone, no matter if you're an intern and it's your first day at work or you're the CEO who's, you know, turning 85 this year and has no plans to retire. We don't care. It doesn't matter. Everyone in between, we wanted to have tools and insights and an opportunity to make change within their sphere of influence, because it's going to be different depending where you are on that scale, Mm -hmm. that hierarchy scale. But uh, we wanted everyone to have something that they could do. And we, we try to bring that same kind of mindset into our speeches. So We hope to give people hope that there is something that they can do, that there's ways that they can impact their teams, impact the relationships with the people that they're working with, and in some way, shift that dynamic and make it better. And honestly, we'll say straight out at the end of the day, sometimes it's just not going to work. It may not be the right Mm -hmm. fit. It's not the right culture. You're, you know, there's going to be situations where leaving is the best option, but we want to give people and leaders and everyone the tools and ideas and inspiration to, and hope that they can in fact make it at least better, if not great. That's obviously the goal, right? We don't want to just help people make workplaces that don't suck. We want people to build awesome workplaces that are really engaging and motivating. And the, the tools, the how is really important, but it's importantly also paired with that, that, that why, that inspiration, and that mindset shift to break us out of old ways of thinking and old patterns of thinking into something new and something better. Mm-hmm. I and I love that, and I think it also makes me think of um, a couple of recent conversations I've had with clients of mine. Where, and I, I'm curious y'all y'all's thoughts on this. If there is a word that you th- you if you went into your average corporation or your average company that you talk to. Is there a word that if you said, if you changed this or implemented this, it would, you know, if it was that only, if that was the only thing, it would change the dynamic. And I think of this recent client that said transparency, like that was their word. They just, the new CEO came in, he brought in a team of leaders and he said, he and I had lunch kind of, you know, along the lines of what y'all do. I like engaging with my clients ahead of the, ahead of the meeting to say, tell me, like, give me all the inside baseball that I can get here. And he said, the one thing I wanted to focus on was vulnerability or sorry, um, yeah, vulnerability, but also transparency to build trust. So is there something, is there a word that each of you have that said, if I could change corporate culture right now, it would start with this. What is that one thing? You, you stole it, Rich. You just said, ah. it. you just said the word that I would have said, Man. which you started with 
transparency and then you switched it to vulnerability or maybe we were just on the same same plane i i was i was feeling i was feeling <laughs> you, you were sucking it in uh yeah vulnerability would 100 percent be it i mean i was thinking along the terms of psychological safety and trust and that's where my mind was going but i think mm. it all centers around vulnerability and the willingness to be a human you know because the first chapter of our book is called humans not robots and i think you know in that idea of robots is that we are these machines that can that i mean obviously robots are not infallible but um they're not as uh, they're not flesh and blood like human beings right and so there's there's an implicit sort of requirement when we show up at work that we are this polished professional buttoned up suit best version of ourselves and it's highly unrealistic we are not we are not you know our emotions don't stop the minute that we log into a zoom or the minute we walk into an office we we are people 24 7 whether we want to be or not and so for me the the ability to say yes i'm human no matter if i again if i'm a ceo or if i'm an intern or if i'm someone uh you know who just joined this company or has been here for many years I'm I'm fallible. I don't know everything. I am uh I am replaceable. I think the best thing one of the best things I ever heard in a speech is uh, we it was coming towards the end of my presentation. It was a presentation on redefined leadership and one of the leaders raised his hand and it was not a question moment question it was not Q&A but I was like, well, "Okay, we're going to roll with this." What? <laughs> yes, sir. Who was so excitedly raising his hand. What would you like to say? And he said he just he didn't even he wasn't talking to me. He looked around at the room and he was like, I think we all just need to realize we're not that important. We are just mm. not that important. And this was a room of seasoned leaders and you could definitely feel some some feathers were ruffled, but he was like, we're not that important. We are all replaceable. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And I so agree. That is a wonderful thing. So embracing the vulnerability and being being open and willing to say, hey, I don't know it all. I need you and you need me and we need each other. And if we can be vulnerable and open, then that's what's going to change change the dynamics and change this place for the better. So that that would be my my word. And I think I'm probably I'm Hannah probably agrees, but I don't know if you have a, a different one that came to your mind, Hannah. I do. It's actually funny because I was thinking compassion, which the last chapter mm. of our book is compassionate leadership. And it's how like whatever the word leader is, compassion is really important. And I think it goes hand in hand with vulnerability because and I mean, especially the past few years, I feel like this is what everyone was saying we need from people and organizations is more compassion. And I think it can get thrown around a lot. And the word like empathy can get thrown a around a lot, but it's, it's seeing and understanding exactly that piece. It's like, we are all humans. We are all, we are all vulnerable. We are all fallible. And so like the big lesson in that for so many organizations is like, how are you making sure that your workplace is designed for human beings? Right. And yeah. like the, the compassion that's in that. I mean, I was delivering a presentation yesterday to, it was part of their leadership development program. And there is a statistic that's something like you will get more um, efficiency out of employees, they will be happier if you expect 85% from them. Like, do not oh. expect 100%, do not expect 115, expect 85%. And it was funny because someone typed into the chat, um, it was a virtual presentation. She's like, Hannah, we are all super type A. You just made a lot of us very nervous. And I was like, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> That's understandable. But I think that if we're, if we are walking around expecting 100% from other people or from yourself, we can't walk around with compassion. Like we can't walk around with understanding what people are going through and then doing something about that, which is acting in compassion. So I feel like if, if 
we were to go into yeah an organization and we, we work with leaders a lot like we work with everyone but leaders is probably the primary audience for at least our presentations not necessarily our book and yeah if they could all just dial up their vulnerability and compassion i feel like workplaces everywhere could change that's my optimism that's like my my hope that i'm sending out into the universe i i love it and so I, and I, this concept of humans first is something that y'all talk about quite a bit. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious, because I feel like prior to the pandemic, it was business as usual, varied on the culture, varied on the company. And then the pandemic hit and of course, everything got thrown up in the air and some things landed favorably, some things did not. Uh, but when you think about that humans first mentality, especially as we've come out of the pandemic and we've come back to back to office cultures and, you know, should we go hybrid? Should we keep people remote? How are we doing this? We've hired virtual associates all over the country. Now, what do we do that we're doing this office first culture? How has the focus on a human's first culture for a company changed since the pandemic? And what are the risks if they ignore that? It's such a great question because it's gone kind of both ways. I've seen I think that's why we felt such an urgency to write this book is it's almost like there was, there's two paths opening up and one is the tr- tried and true path and it's not leading into like the plate where we would want the workplace to go. And the other one is, is and we reference this analogy in the book a lot. It's like we, we had a portal opened up that we could choose to step through if, if we saw it, if we ad- identified it and acknowledged the value in it and, you know, chose to take a different route than the one that we've always been walking. And is it a little harder to go down because it's, you know, fresh, whatever, you're going to have to hack your way through it. Maybe. Yeah. But is the end destination better? We think so. And so, you know, during the pandemic, we saw uh, the pandemic years, we saw some organizations, you know, something, some things I would hear were uh, leaders saying things like, "I, I trust my people are doing their work. Otherwise, they wouldn't be my people. I wouldn't hire. I wouldn't have them, you know, in these roles if I didn't trust that they would be doing their jobs. Plus, you can fool around at work just the same as you can fool around working from home. Like, if you want to be on Facebook and kill time for hours, you can do it. And people are going to figure out ways to slack off, no matter where they're working from. And I totally agree with that. And and then you know we saw other people who said, well, I how do I know if the person I'm employing is doing their laundry or answering emails? And one time. I actually asked one of my interviewees, I, I asked her, I was like, but okay, I hear you on that frustra- on that question, right? And that's, you know, this is new to you. You've never done virtual, you know, had people work virtually. I want to ask just how are your levels of productivity? And she said, oh, better than ever. They're like higher than higher numbers than we've ever had. And I said, well, does it matter then if they're doing their laundry? If, and you know, they're clearly getting their work done. Productivity is high. I doesn't matter. And her response was, huh, well, I guess that's the question, isn't it? And for me, you know, it's, it's, it, we had this opportunity to really humanize how we think about work because does it matter? It doesn't matter if someone's, you know, let, letting, you know, going on a walk with their dog middle of the day, if they're getting all of their work done and probably getting it done in a shorter amount of time as well. But I do think there was, there was a level of, you know, people implemented monitoring software to mm-hmm. make sure that they knew exactly how many hours their uh, employees were sitting in front of computers. 
And yet again, there are ways to slack off if you want to slack off. I mean, I laughed my butt off at some of the TikToks that came out about how to go around some of these monitoring softwares. Mm-hmm. Someone attached their, I'm sitting in front of my computer, obviously, so I have my mouse. Someone attached their mouse to a Roomba and was like, mm-hmm. if you want to go do some errands, but you need that little green button on Slack to, to remain green and not go to red, right. put, your, put your mouse on a, on a Roomba and you're golden. So I mean, it's just to me, it all goes back to that that trust, that vulnerability, that willingness to be open with one another and human with each other. I think that we're seeing, you know, there's there's a lot of articles right now about return to office and the forced return to office and the 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 chasm that's really forming between leaders who are really pushing a return to office sometimes for great. I mean, with a lot of times with great reasoning, they want more collaboration, connection, all of that. I understand that. And then, you know, people who are desperately trying to cling to that work from home because they found a little bit more balance. Some people, you know, it was a disaster and they're like, can't wait to go in the office. But a lot of people found balance and, you know, they were like, I can actually cook my meals now. I don't have to be running around, you know, eating whatever protein bar that I find, you know, on in a grocery, in a, in a gas station. Like I can actually have a rounded life and, and I am better at my work because of it. So there's, there's a question right now. I think we're still in the middle of that question phase of, are we going to honor the lessons that we learned or are we going to forget all of the incredible lessons that a huge tragic existential crisis, you know, and just global crisis taught us. And already I think people are forgetting those lessons. So this book was our attempt to capture it and capture it with the the why, the where does it come from, the where did we come from, and the how do we choose to step through that portal into a better world rather than just revert back to the easy, because we've done it before, kind of, mm-hmm. of way of doing things. Uh, but I think it's, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of opportunity right now. It's a matter of actually grasping it. I love that. Hannah, did you, I, just, I see you nodding. Obviously, she did the great, I, I love the feedback on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I'm, I'm in agreement. Yeah. It's like, there's just kind of back to the idea of hope and optimism. It's just, there's, because there are so many people who are trying to like, okay, now we can go back to how things were before. And it's like, please do not do that. Like that is, that's not going to be good for anyone. And there's an understanding and there's comfort there, especially if people are like, I was doing this this way for 20 years. I just want to go back to what I was doing for 20 years. It's like, of course, that's a very understandable human reaction. It's a safety zone, but it's not, it's usually not really great for everyone else. If we just go back to what was comfortable before that maybe wasn't working. Like we have to kind of appreciate the changes that came out that are better for people at work at large. And and in your research, especially generationally, are you seeing, I mean, there's obviously like, I mean, just personal experience there. I mean, the more old school executives are like, everybody back to work and come into the office and this is what we're expecting. But are there any surprises that you're seeing generationally? Like, are the, is the younger generation wanting to go back to the office? Is there anything along those trend lines that you're seeing that maybe companies aren't paying attention to? Because I feel like there's not a, it's not a, here's the square peg and here's the other square peg and we got to figure this out. It's either all in or all not. But is there something along those lines and in, in what you're finding that companies need to be paying attention to, especially if it comes to generations? I mean, say- yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you go, Hannah. You, I just wanted to say an emphatic yes. I was going to say, both of you leaned into your cameras as I was wrapping the question up, like, cannot yeah. wait to get to this one. 
I th- I would say, you know, I mean, it's it's no surprise that a lot of people that are younger generations are like, I just want the flexibility. Like, it's not mm. necessarily like you have to only work from home or have to only be in the office. It's like kind of to Lisa's example before, it's like, just let me do my work in the way that I can get my work done and everyone's happy. Like, that's that's really what people are looking for. And I would say across the generations, you're probably going to see that. But the people who are speaking the most loudly about it are Gen Z and millennials as well. And there's there's one thing I think that a lot of organizations are missing right now with Gen Z. And it's that when and I know this because like this is kind of some of the stuff to what they say after I present Um and some Gen Zs have come up to me and they're like, you know, Hannah, the hardest part of my job so far has been onboarding and training. Mm. And they're like, no one understands what it is like to be a new employee in today's work world, except for us. But the people who are designing our trainings and onboardings are using kind of these old school methods. And so we're missing a lot of information or we're missing connections with people. Like we And we don't know what to ask because we haven't done this before. Mm-hmm. And there's some people who you've even said too, they're like, yeah, I started here, you know, a few months ago and now they're asking me to design the onboarding. <laughs> you're like, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, how am I supposed to design the onboarding? Like, I, I'm new. Help me. Design. Like, I don't know. So I feel like there's a huge miss there. And there's all kinds of studies and I'm not even going to say numbers right now because I'll get them wrong. But those first one, two, three, six months are so critical. Like that's when they're losing people. And so I think that there hasn't been enough time and attention paid to how to create a truly dynamic onboarding experience for a younger generation in a new work environment, whether that's like hybrid or virtual. Um, I just don't think that there's enough work that has been done there to, and it's still early. I'm not saying anyone should be able to do it perfectly, but I think there's a miss. I think there's kind of a missed understanding. Yeah, I actually, just to jump off Hannah's point, I had a, a couple really revelatory conversations with people that that then, you know, I saw the pattern, you know, emerge in other places. One was a Gen Zer that I was speaking to who said, you know, I'm working at this company. I've been here for two years. I entered virtually. I All I've known is virtual. We gather every now and again. It's a great company. I love it. But if we don't have an option to go into the office at some point in the near future, I'm going to find another job because I've never had that experience before. I've never known what it's like to go into an office, how you interact in an office environment on a regular basis. And it's not necessarily that I want five days a week, but one or two days a week where I'm in the office interacting with my peers, I want that experience. I never had that. And I, and I want to have that experience in my, you know, work history in my career. So if I don't get that offered to me, then as much as I love it here, I'm going to go. And to me, I was shocked. I was like, wow, what is this is, I mean, it makes sense. It's logically, it makes so much sense, but I'd never thought that, you know, someone in her generation, she was a Gen Zer, would would express that desire to go into an office. And then on the flip side with, you know, older generations, I've heard, first of all, it obviously generations is where it's sociological, it's patterns, people break out of these patterns. There's tons of Gen Zers who are happy going to the office. There's tons of boomers who want virtual work. So it's all a mix, but we're just looking at these broad trends. But I was speaking to a a boomer who I felt like I I experienced a journey of hers just in the in the scope of our 30 minute conversation. So she started very much 
mm, you know, Gen Zs, they, they just have no work ethic and they prioritize their life above their work and they don't want to work hard. They don't want to put in the 10, 11 hour days and they they have these strict boundaries around their weekends. And and sometimes I'm, and this is where I saw the shift happen. She was like, sometimes I think, you know, I do, I, I, I'm starting to think maybe I'm the dumb one because maybe they're the ones who have it right now that I'm thinking about it. What, why am I working so hard when you, maybe they, maybe they, and she, she just had this like light bulb moment of maybe they're not so, you know, silly after all, maybe they're onto something here with the valuing life above work. And so it's just super interesting to see, you know, there's no, first of all, there's no, you know, one thing that you can apply to one generation, but but I think that I think context is super important. That's another word right. that I would use in, in trying to define a great workplace is how, and it, it goes into the empathy and compassion, right? Is to understand the other person. So how much are you doing to really get to know the people that you're working with, to be able to individualize? And I think, Rich, this is where a lot of your work comes into play too, mm-hmm. of emotional intelligence and really being able to see and read and understand other people because there is no one one model fits all there is not it's that's the easy route there is no easy route we're back to that portal back to that path that requires it's it's work it's it's going to be hard work but we need to individualize our approach to people and obviously try to be equitable as much as possible try to be fair but uh it's going to take some work and some context and i think that's really important but yeah it is really interesting things that you might have thought were obvious are not quite as as obvious as at first they seem and I love the story about the boomer. And in my mind, I'm 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 literally seeing it. And, and, and I kind of I think I probably did. I probably have to go back and look at the footage. But I think I did the kind of the grin and head tilt. Like I'm just going to let this play out. Like you're getting there. Just you're figuring. <laughs> they sleep so well and yeah, they like, seem so happy. And and even though they they don't see. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Like, I'm, I'm just going to wait for you here. You're coming around and we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Come on, pull it through, pull it through. Right. Um, I, so not that any of us can see into the future, but I'm curious as much as you're having these conversations and talking with companies and leaders and employees, do you have a, a bold prediction or a bold hope for the next three years? in just in general corporate culture or work culture that you see this being more of an emphasis or you hope that this changes? What, what, what would each of the, if each of you say to that? Mm. I, I will say, I still think that we're at this. I mean, we talk about it as an inflection point, an opportunity. It's a point of transformation and change. And I think that we are still in it. Like, I really, really do. They're saying that burnout rates now are higher than they were two years ago. Again, statistics, like the studies and everything, right? So take everything with a grain of salt. However, I think that we are just, we're humans in like reaction mode, right? For so long in survival mode. And then it's like, okay, cool. We can calm down, but wait, we still have to process everything that's happened. So I feel like we're still in this transition. So if I'm thinking of, And again, in my optimism, I'm thinking of like what the workforce of the future is going to be like. Um, There is a big shift right now with leadership. There is a big shift in how people 
are leading and looking at organizations. And I, I just had a call like an hour and a half ago with one of these leaders who said, I came into an environment and they were going to like shut everything down. And he worked at a university. He's like, they were going to shut down my entire department. And he's like, that's just because things hadn't changed in 25 years. He's like, so I'm coming in and he's and for this transformation to happen. He was like, I'm going in phases. The first phase, listen. The second phase, summarize what you're listening and what you're hearing. The third phase, build relationships. It's like all of these foundational pieces of, again, just humans at work. So when I think about the optimism and the transformation that we're going to see, I see this shift in leadership really taking the time to listen, to pay attention to what is happening around them so that they can continue shifting and changing their workplaces because everything is always going to change. There's no, right. It's like, it's the journey, not the destination or whatever, you know, cliche we want to use, but we're still, we're still riding it. We're still on this wave. We're still on this journey. And I think the, there's a lot of really good leaders out there. And there's a lot of people who are getting into positions of leadership who are listening and Mm. they're doing something with what they are hearing. And I think that that's the most important piece. That's me, Lisa, what about you? Yeah, I think, so there's there's the, the classic cyclical changing over of the guard, which happens every 20 or 30 years with the, you know, bulk of whoever's in charge switching hands from boomers, from, you know, originally from traditionalists to boomers, boomers now Gen X, Gen Xers to millennials. And, you know, that shifts the way that, we work and the way that people lead because we bring that generational perspective and dynamic into those positions. So I think that's one that's going to happen naturally over the next five to 10 years. I do believe, I agree with Hannah. I think it's a very interesting, almost tenuous, intense situation in the workplace right now, which mirrors maybe some of the polarity and tension of the world outside of work, you know, especially in the U S and it's, it's, I don't know what's going to happen. Truly, I feel that we're at a crossroads and I think it could go either way. And the way, I mean, Hannah and I in our book really, really felt and I think still feel that we will move towards that, that, you know, more humanized version of work where, you know, we really do center human beings. And I think no matter what generation you belong to, obviously you can choose that route. I do think that, that we will. I think many people of all ages had revelations during the pandemic years and, uh, you know, there's another faction who would like to hold on to the old way of doing things. So I do think there's a big tension. I think as the generational transfer happens, maybe we'll tip the scales a little bit more in favor of the humanized version of work, but the, the capacity to make that decision lies in everyone. And I do, you know, sometimes I, for the, for the audiences that I think can really take this message, I sometimes like to end with a, a an image of Blockbuster with the foreclosure, you know, not foreclosure, but a closing down right. sale. Everything is, you know, everything is for sale. Because I do want to, you know, suggest just the idea of clinging to the past so hard, clinging to the way things were and the way we used to do things, even if they worked really wonderfully. Back to context, they worked really wonderfully in that moment of in time. We are in a different moment in time. So we have to consider the context of now and everything that's happening now and the people that we are leading right now. And if we cling so, you know, white knuckledly to the way that we always used to do things, are we setting ourselves up for failure? 
And so I like to end on that message, which is a little, I don't know, it's kind of a tough message to end on, but sometimes I think, you know, is the, 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 the wake up call that people need, but, you know, I do think it's going to be really interesting. Like Hannah said, we are in that inflection point. So the next few years are going to be very revealing in terms of what the future of work kind of shapes out to be. I think, I think the last thing that I white knuckled in relation to Blockbuster was my automatic rewind case for my VHS tapes. Um, yeah. Of I, course you had an automatic rewind. Of that is course the I did. thing I've heard in my entire life. <laughs> right? Amazing. So, and, and I will, I will, I will legitimately put a definition of what that is or a photo of what that is in the, in the show notes, just for those, you know, millennials and Gen Z that have no earthly idea what I'm talking about. Um, oh getting me in the, in my blockbuster feels right now. Um, I, I love both of those. And I think the, the Lisa, what you touched on just a second ago made me think of a conversation too that I've had recently around the philosophy of it's not broke, don't fix it. But if it's not broke, could it be working better? So it's not yes. necessarily that things are inopportune or that they're you know catastrophic, but Blockbuster is a perfect example. They're chugging along just fine with these blinders on, but they're not paying attention to what's going outside. They're not future-proofing their business based off of their comfort with what is now. Right. So I think that that philosophy of white knuckling onto the onto the current, but it's also like, are you are you too complacent in what's going on yes. now? Do you just kind of feel that everything is gonna be okay when in actuality, you know, you're you're literally there's there's a truck coming at you, not to be not to go from optimism to trucks hitting you, but there's a truck of of lack of future proof coming your way, and if you mm-hmm. don't pay attention in your peripheral, something bad's gonna happen, a la blockbuster. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I heard this quote from a fellow, uh, someone in our community, Heather Welpley, who speaks on imposter syndrome, and she's she's amazing. But she she said that in one of her conversations with her clients, someone had said to her, you know, I think I'd rather choose unhappiness over discomfort. And that mm. to me has stuck with me so, so hard, because I think, wow. you know, doing things the way, you know, clinging to that way that we've always done things is is comfortable. And even if it makes us unhappy, even it cause even if it causes unhappy unhappiness, people will will cling to it to try to avoid those feelings of discomfort. And I think that is such a sage kind of thought for that applies to many different things. But I do think it's uncomfortable. Change is really hard, and people avoid change like crazy. And uh, it's it's just it's it's inevitable. So the more that we can get comfortable in that discomfort, the more we have the capacity to see beyond the the tried and true and try maybe something different. Mm-hmm. I love it. I, then that's that again, a different sentiment than the blockbuster feels, but that statement alone is that's eye-opening because to your point, yeah, right? you hear so much, especially in, in conversations, you know, you have these big conversations around digital transformation and any kind of change within an organization people automatically tense up and they're like, you know, they're, they're grabbing their stuff because they don't want somebody messing with their systems and their, right. their structures right. and, and their teams the way they are. But yet it's, it's, you know, I always talk about the change happening for you, not to you. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody, nobody wants, that. like, I mean, outside of a few people that I've met in my life, nobody wants you to be discomfortable because they're sadists, but it's right. because right. that there's something better coming. Um, I will protect the names of the not so innocent in that conversation. Um, But it is, it's, you know, companies are, they're going to need to be paying attention to their peripheral on many fronts. And Mm -hmm. even that change alone can be discomforting for a lot of leaders or people in decision-making 
you know, obviously some boomers that are a little bit more um, adverse to change or don't think that there's a problem, but there are a lot of things that companies and leaders need to be paying attention to on the, on the, the landscape of business moving forward. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting too. Like the, the other thought that I had when you were talking is there are those that get it and those that really don't. And I think there's this quiet middle ground where they kind of feel like they need to do something, but they're not quite sure if they should or what they should. And I think that sounds like where, where you two come in to come in and say, Hey, look, there, there's opportunity here, but we need to talk about it instead of just holding on and hoping that the storm passes. Is, so is that, yeah. are, are you thinking that's where, because I mean, I'm thinking about your, your audiences that you talk with and the people that reach out to you, like, because even, even candidly, like as much as I love the two of you, like the conversation of a client saying, Hey, we need to have somebody come in and talk about our company culture. That's, that's a growth moment for an organization to realize that. Mm-hmm. So I love that you you get them in that vulnerable position, but I think that's the middle ground of a lot of companies that are needing that conversation to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the book obviously talks to that as well, where people can can really engage themselves and figure out what they need to be doing moving forward. So talk about the book a little bit. It's it's coming out soon as of September 15th when we're recording this. So mm-hmm. and it's been yeah. a work in the making. So do you want to talk a little bit about the process and what's next for the book? Let's do it. Let's do it. So Bring yes, it the book, the book, uh, the future of work is human transforming company culture for a post pandemic world. And yes, we have it. Um, ah, shameless plug. I love it. Shameless plug. It's, it's, it is a true, true, true labor of love and passion. And it is, it's, it is written for every single person. And I think Rich, what you were just saying, when we go into rooms of people, we definitely will kindly sometimes, you know, it's just like, well, let's hold up a mirror so you can reflect a little bit on yourselves, what you're contributing to, what you're changing. And we actually say that in the introduction of this book as well, which is as you read this, there are going to be moments for you to reflect. There are going to be moments that make you uncomfortable. And there's going to be moments where you're like, yes, this is so true. I need to give this to my boss and casually put it on their desk. So they read it too. Like that's kind of the goal of what this book is for. So I will... I'll pause there, Lisa. Uh, yes, yeah, um, all yeah. of those things. Also, <laughs> uh, we, we wrote the book in a way where we, it sort of, so uses the information that we've learned in our speaking careers to how do you really reach people? And so part of it is giving that context, that why behind the what, well, obviously showing the what, giving the why behind the what, and then giving tools and how do we how do we act on this information that you've given us? So you've told us you've inspired this mindset shift. Maybe I'm thinking differently around, you know, how hard I work ethic or perfectionism or, you know, how we build a culture of connection or, you know, caring for caregivers, whatever that is. You've created that mindset shift, but now what do I do about it? Because I don't want to just like daydream about, wow, that's a good idea. I want to actually do something myself. So mm-hmm. each chapter is split up into part uh, A, we'll say, is that 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 context and that, that mindset shift, that inspiration for a mindset shift. And part B of each chapter is the tactical. Okay, how do we do this? What do we, how do we implement this change? And in many cases we have, you know, leaders can do this. Uh, managers can do this, individual contributors can do this. So we actually very, very, you know, tactically break it down into steps that individuals can take themselves because we wanted we wanted that how to be very, very clear. And we we also, I think a, a great thing. So this is a, it's a, 
she's thick. She's a thick book. Okay. She's a big one. She's about 300 pages. Hannah well, we got a like, lot of things to talk about here. So, I mean, the, the, uh, she can't not be thick. She, yes. she, she was, yes, there's many years and it reflects many years. Uh, we, 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 cons- we were like, should we have broken this into two books or something? But we wrote it in a way where you don't have to, it is not a novel, you know, you don't have to pick up at page one and read through to page, I think it's to like 297. It's written in a way that you can jump around, read whatever chapter is relevant to you in that moment. You know, maybe you're struggling with work from home and virtual work and remote work. There's a chapter on that. You can just d- dive into that. And that's all you have to read. You don't have to read the whole rest of it for it to make sense. So we really wanted to to keep the the working lives of real human people in mind when we designed the the way that we wrote this book. So I think that's a nice little functionality element to it as well. Yeah, and yeah. and I will say too, you know, again, shameless plug that I got a preview of it. It is it is easy to read because it is conversational and engaging, like the two of you are. I will say that you know, yes, she is thick, but she is so engaging. And she is so jam-packed with value that it is a must-read for anybody who wants to change their culture or maybe people that the people that are not the the blockbusters of the world. If you are comfortable yes. with what's going on in your organization, go read this immediately to make sure that you're not setting yourself up for a complacency. So yeah. I I will from a quality and quantity standpoint, like it is worth every page, period. And it Thank is, you, so you know, it I I I will say. And I told you all this in an email when you sent it to me, like, I am truly not a fan of reading digital books, but I read this because I loved reading what, and I could hear you two talking, but at the same time, like it's engaging. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it flows so well. And I remember when you two started on this journey that it was like, here we go. We're going to write this book. And it is, it is worth every drop of effort that you put into it. So congratulations to you both. It is awesome. I cannot wait to see, and I will send you both a bottle of champagne when it hits the New York times bestsellers list. Like, like it is, it's phenomenal. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, so before I let you go, I hinted, I hinted at this at the beginning before we, we went live, I'm bringing you into the rapid fire session. So yes. random questions off the cuff, got to answer them honestly. Nothing too embarrassing or controversial, I don't think. I don't think. We'll see. Um, but first thoughts. Okay. Favorite candy? Sour Patch Kids. Sa- sa- I don't know how to explain these. They're the sour belts. The sour like belt candy. Have you ever seen those? Like a sour uh, rope? And it's not a rope. It's like a belt. It's like a little belt. It's about yay long. It's extremely sour. Oh my goodness. It's amazing. But it's sour, a very, it's a sour belts. I'm going to have to get some of those this weekend. So I'm going to have to try those out. Oh, amazingly delicious. So both on the sour tip though. I like that. Besides mm-hmm. water, what drink would you not be able to live without? Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Just bam. How do you ta- how do you take it? How do you first water cup second? Let's yeah, be honest. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. It's yeah. coffee is enhanced water in my mind. What do, how do you take it? I will drink it in any kind of which way, pretty much. I don't really like the super sweet frappa pappuccino kind of situations, <laughs> but I do enjoy me uh, an iced latte. I'm not gonna lie, with a little dash of lavender syrup, just a tiny scotch of lavender just, syrup, just a little, a little, a little dash, a little, a little dash. Yes, Hannah. Yes. Um, I, I just like brewed coffee. I don't like espresso drinks as much. Um, and I like like a good pour over. And if I'm going to be super specific about this, I really like, um, light roasted bright flavors and my favorite blends tend to come from Ethiopia. So 
Why is that specific? That doesn't sound specific at all. Is that not specific? No, uh, of course not. Preferably at an elevation harvested above 250 feet. Like that's where I want the beans to come from. I don't know that much. Most embarrassing song that you could not take out of a Spotify playlist if you had to. What song do you love that is just embarrassing to admit? And we've built playlists before the three of us, so you can't go to any of those. I want I want a true gem. I would say She-Wolf by Shakira. That is in Ooh. one of my playlists. It was also, um, just, a, just a quick thing while Lisa's thinking of hers, this was a must play at my wedding. And for some reason, three of our friends went up to our DJ and was like, hey, hey, uh, can you play? Can you play She-Wolf? And she was like, I don't know what is going on with this group of people, but it's on the must playlist. <laughs> so don't worry about it. So I would say She-Wolf by Shakira. That's, That's so good. Okay, listen, I feel like I have a lot of these. Like I, I've got to have like a guilty play like playlist on my Spotify. But the first one, I'll tell you the one that popped into my head and then probably the more accurate one. So the, the one that popped into my head was Call Me Maybe. Oh, by Carly Rae Jepsen. It's a jam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a jam. I feel like more likely is 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 some is Nickelback. I'm not gonna lie, more likely. All right, thanks everybody for coming to the show. We just had a Nickelback. Like, bye. I've enjoyed knowing you all. I love me some Nickelback. It's so so. In their defense, in their so first of all, which song by Nickelback? Are you just saying the whole catalog of Nickelback is is your only embarrassing Um, playlist? I I really enjoy Nickelback, but the two that uh, come into mind are How You Remind Me and the dumb photograph song that is so terrible, but I like it. I like it. I can't help it. And right now, nobody listening will be able to get those songs out of their head for uh-huh. at least a week. So love that. that. Nice. Love the Nickelback. Um, what would you be doing if you weren't doing what you do? What would be your what would be the other job you would take? And I love that Hannah looks this way. So she's looking, it looks like you're looking at Lisa, like, what would you do without me? What would you do without me? <laughs> I would be an ice skater. Just kidding. I would not be an ice skater. Uh, that's just a, that's a throwback to Sister Act 2, which is my favorite movie of all time. And I honestly think is the greatest movie that's ever <laughs> been made and will ever be made. Uh, so I always wanted to be an author, but writing this book, I mean, <laughs> no more. Hard. No, my, my inspire, I always joke, my inspirational wisdom, having written my second book is don't ever write a book ever. Cause it's hard. It's really hard. So I feel like that, that might've burned that dream. There was a, it was a, it was a different kind of a dream. I was wanting to write, you know, young adult fiction, uh, very into the fantasy world. Hence my, you know, tattoos. This is Gandalf oh. signature. Mm-hmm. This is Elvish. So, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a nerd. I, I think that I would have found a way to, to have a non-traditional job. Like I would have mm. made something out of traveling or I think I would have always done something entrepreneurial, but there's no, there's never like a dream of mine that I had other than really writing and being creative. So I don't know. I don't know what that says about me, but I can't even, I can't even think of a straight answer to that. So sorry. No, I, no, I'm, so I'm also fire. picturing you like preparing on the ice for your individual show with mm-hmm. photograph coming over the the arena loudspeakers like uh you know what she's, Rich, gone, yeah, she's I, gone with nickelback for her individual this is very interesting I, choice <laughs> when i was very young and maybe nickelback excludes me from this but when i was when i was in middle school my dream you will enjoy this rich my dream was to be a dj so for what that's worth don't ever let the dream die you have a personal coach here 
that I that still that. can happen. <laughs> that that can and will happen. We are going to make that happen somehow. DJ Lisa, DJ minus Nickelback, <laughs> minus Nickelback. Would you be a Nickelback DJ? <gasps> oh, there'd be three people at every single one of your shows. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Failure. Amazing. All right, Hannah, what's what's your what's your alternate job? Oh man, I, I, this is an extremely difficult question to answer for me too. Like there's a part of me that thinks I would have hopped around. Um, I come from a family of healthcare practitioners. So I feel like there's a part of me, that's part of why I was going to chiropractic school is I wanted mm-hmm. to be in healthcare in some kind of capacity. So I think it would be something maybe like that. Um, I would maybe be in healthcare. Yeah. Lisa. What about, what about, um, weather person? Oh, I did. So I wanted to be a broadcast meteorologist. That's why I originally went to school. I um, was going to be a broadcast meteorologist, and I so see that. I'm I, honestly, I could so see you doing that. That sounds like a great fit for you. If so you're ever in Kansas City, you tell me ahead of time. I'm taking you to the news station that I work with, and we're getting you in front of a green screen. We'll figure that. Oh my out. gosh, I would. That's like a dream of mine. I would love to do that. That'd be so fun. I feel like also, Rich, you're closer to so like a little bucket list item for me sometime in life is to do a like tornado chasing or like a storm chasing kind of thing. Like come on down that, to Kansas. <laughs> we got plenty. Right? I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. This is, this is part of why I was like, I want to do meteorology because I can be around storms all the time and I can like speak a little bit. And I just, I can't like, everything needs to be constantly changing. Lisa and I are very similar. We're assuming rich. You're similar too. I feel like it's mm-hmm. like an entrepreneurial thing. It's like, yep. gotta be moving, gotta be chasing, gotta be doing. So yep. yeah, I could see that. I could see that. I mean, my childhood dream was to be a dolphin trainer in the ocean, if that's even a job. Um, and so anybody else thinking of Ace Ventura in their head right now? Anyone? Anyone? God, the the terrible. dolphin trainer scene? <laughs> I think it's just um, Lisa Frank is the reason that I have this passion. It was a very millennial trendy thing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, constantly moving. I don't know. Love don't it. Know. All right. Last one. If you were given $1,000 to spend on anything besides an autographed Chad Kroger picture, if you're given $1,000 to spend on anything, what would you spend it on? Um, and we have to, it's like a fun thing to spend it on, fun right? Thing. Like, we're not Can't, being you, like, I don't want to donate to, no, it has to be like, you for you, something that you've just wanted to do, cheesy, random. I mean, random's not a problem because of what we've been talking about in the last five minutes. So $1,000, right. spend it on whatever you want. I, I, would, you, I would update my snowboarding gear. That's kind of a boring answer, but that's honestly what I would do. I would update. It's an honest answer. Board, new, new bindings, new gear. Yeah, that's what I would do. I like that. I like that. Where are you going I, with it, Hannah? I, I would I would not do that. Um, partially because no one no one I think any person in my life would say Hannah go snowboarding and be like please don't you'll hurt yourself. Um, that is not something that I could do. Uh, but no, I would I would spend a thousand dollars on like the best restaurant coursed meal experience with some of the closest people in my life. So it would just be I would probably spend it on an experience with really 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 good food and good company. That's probably what I would spend it on. And because like, I've always had this fantasy for Lisa, you're invited. Don't worry. Well, the all vegetarian courses. I'm a, I'm a part of good company. So I assumed. <laughs> Just assumed the invite. Like I, she already saw herself sitting at the table. So whether or not you wanted her there, she's going to be there. So. It's true. Um, I definitely would want her there and all her dad jokes. Um, 
but yes, it's, that's probably what it would be. It would just be a good experience. Something so follow- Turn that around to you, Rich. What would you do? What would you spend it on? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I, the, the first answer that comes to mind, I've been going down this for whatever reason, vinyl collection craze right now. Um, one, I need to invest in a decent record player because I've gone the cheap route twice and it's failed me miserably. Um, but I have been building a catalog of all of my favorite albums from my generation. Cause I have my grandfather's vinyl collection and I'll get my dad's vinyl collection. And then I'm building my own, which I quickly realized as I started building this, I'm like, Oh, this would be great to pass on to my sons one day. I'm like, but they can't listen to any of it until they're at least 18 because it's <laughs> Cypress Hill. It's rage against the machine. It's slipknot. Like, and some of like some of the cleaner stuff uh, they've dipped into god forbid like i've they've one of my favorite new bands is a band called ice nine kills which is probably the most interesting band you will ever listen to they take scary movies all of their songs are based on a scary movie they deconstruct the script or the plot and then they turn it into a song so if either one of you like scary movies i will send you a link to their their phenomenal and their concerts are like heavy metal musicals they have costume changes. They have extra characters. It is the coolest thing I have ever seen in my entire life. Um, but it has also made me realize that I have some um, appropriately challenged music taste at times. So we'll, I'll just put it that way. Um, would I love to bust out the chronic and play it loudly in my house on vinyl? Yes. Can I? No, because my kids are 11 and 7. So there's that. Um, but yes, my answer would be, just go on a shopping spree at a vinyl store, probably buy some old R&B, um, some yes. old Motown soul, like mm. really cool stuff. Um, if you, I know that y'all work with the executive speakers bureau in Memphis. The next time you're there, my hometown, number one, my cousins are, um, restaurant tours there. Um, they have seven restaurants that are all James Beard quality. And so I will send you there. And then I will also send you to a place. Uh, one of the restaurants is called Bishop. And it's in a hotel in downtown Memphis that was an old train station. And you walk down this huge staircase and at the bottom is the bar and they have a DJ booth with this massive two-story wall of vinyl that the only music they play in there are artists that have are from Memphis or have recorded that song in Memphis. Oh, wow. wow that's cool. It is, it is amazing. So food and music, I got you the next time you're in Memphis and you could take the team. Um so, yeah, so I'm down the vinyl rabbit hole at the end of the show here, but I am so thankful for the two of you. I am so proud of you as a friend and as a colleague for what you have accomplished, both as speakers and as authors. I'm so excited for the world to get the book like it is it is needed in so many places by so many people. Um, but more than anything, I love the impact that you two individually have on your clients and your audiences and who you reach out to and work with, because from a distance, I can see it. I admire what you do and I applaud what you do because you are truly changing lives. You're changing cultures. And I, I admire you both to the hill for that. So keep doing what you're doing. Please tell everybody where they can find you. I've, I've been following you for years, but I know where everything, but tell people where they can find more about the two of you. Yes. Well, first, yes. Rich, thank you so many, so much for your comments. Like it means of course. the world to both me and Lisa, as does your support. So we support you endlessly on our side as well and love seeing everything that you do. Um, to find us, www.goodcompanyconsulting.com is our website. Lots of information there, including links to get the book. There's a little tab at the top that says book. 
Um, you can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn at Good Company Consulting. Love it. And there is a pre-order button for those that are jealous of my preview. You can go and pre-order the, the book ASAP. So I will be sharing the link to the website, um, sharing more information, sharing your social links because people need to know who you two are and they need to see and hear and, and be impacted as I have been and as other companies have been uh, by your words, by your knowledge and by the stories that you tell. So thank you both for doing what you do. Keep it up. I am here in your corner 115% every single day, but I am very thankful for your time today. I'm very thankful for the effort and the care that you put into what you do for companies that you work with. So thank you so much. Thank you, Rich. It's been so awesome chatting with you. Amazing. So thank you. Now, look at this photograph. Every time I do, it makes me laugh. Great <laughs> company consulting. Thank you so much, Hannah and Lisa, for being on the show.